Let's take our Bibles. We have quite a bit uh, to cover this morning. We're going to go to Proverbs chapter 13, and we'll look at about four different references throughout that entire book. <clears throat> just a heads up for the booth back there, I just changed the batteries on this lapel. If I don't tell you now, I probably will never tell you. So I, um, that's what I'm just telling you now. Proverbs chapter 13 and verse 10. So on page 681 in a church loan Bible. Proverbs 13.10 says this, Only by pride cometh contention, but with the well-advised is wisdom. If you're taking notes, you can do so, if you'd like to, on the back of your bulletin. I'd like you to circle the word contention and connect that with the word pride. And then do the same, maybe square the phrase well-advised and square the word wisdom. This is how I used to mark in my Bible. I don't mark in my Bible that much anymore because... I still need to see what the Bible says. <laughs> now, on the surface level, that's humorous, but I've found that if I put a lot in my Bible, for me personally, it begins to get in the way of what the Scripture's saying. Not saying it's bad to mark in your Bible. Dr. Lynchham was famous for his Dead Sea Scrolls. <laughs> we, all, we all knew what his Bible looked like, and I don't think that's a, uh, a bad thing. But for myself, I like to allow the Scripture to speak to me, instead of putting down phrases or words inside the Scripture, that may only be in an application. For what we're doing here, circling things or squaring something or putting a triangle around it or whatever, it kind of shows you there is connection between these two contradicting points. The first point here that I want you to see that pride is the main problem and contention is the symptom. You come down with a fever or you're coughing or something's wrong with your body. You're not sick with a cough. You're not sick with a fever necessarily. There's something going on inside your body that you don't know, but you're seeing that there's a problem because there's symptoms that are manifesting. If you go to a doctor, they'll look at the symptoms. They'll look at main issues that may be causing that and then diagnose you with something. And then you move forward you treat the cough and the fever temporarily, but ultimately you want the infection gone. Whatever's in there that's causing those things, you want it gone. As people who are born-again believers inside the body of Christ, eternally secured, we should have a high alert for pride. Pride is how everything falls apart. It is the only way that contention comes about. Let's move on from Proverbs 13.10 and go to Proverbs 17.14, page 684. Proverbs 17.14 tells us, The beginning of strife is as when one letteth out water. Therefore, leave off contention before it be meddled with. What's the idea here? Well, I want you to think for a moment about turning over a bucket of water. Let's say it's a five-gallon bucket. And as you turn over that five-gallon bucket, if you're not strong enough and that water begins to pour out, it's very hard to put it back in the bucket. And if you're in a place where you don't want water all over the floor or all over wherever you're at, 
you're going to have a major problem. That water causes damage. It's, it's going to go wherever it can seek its own level. Why is that a comparison that is used here in the Scripture? Well, a good study says strife is similar to a spilled bucket of water. Once it starts, it's there. And it's prevalent, it's invasive, and it causes damage. So I'd circle those two things, strife and letteth out of water. And then I'd underline the point of that illustration. The Bible is very good, God is very good, uh, perfect, in giving us illustration. How many of you are familiar with some of the parables that Jesus taught? If you are not, you should. A lot of what we see in these parables are fictitious people and places or things that represent real people, real things, and we are supposed to learn a lesson. For example, the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan is the only one who stopped and helped the man who was beaten and wounded on the side of the road. There were two other groups of people that walked by that injured man first, and they were called a Levite and a priest. They walked by and they said, no, we're not going to help him. No, we're not going to help him. A Samaritan is interesting because he's a mixed Jew. There's a lot of racial tension between a Jewish person and a Samaritan in that day. Yet he not only nursed that man back to health, he put him in a place of lodging, paid for it, and said if there was anything outside of what he had already paid that became due to make sure that the innkeeper came back to him to provide. What's the lesson there? That God can use people who are not inside of the chosen nation of Israel to bring about glory and praise to another person. I think this is an illustration of the fact that the gospel is going to go past the Jews and be given to the Gentiles. But if you're not aware of the teaching style that Jesus uses there, or you're looking to find fault with Jesus, that truth will be hidden from you. It's the purpose of a parable. It's supposed to reveal truth to those who are seeking, and it's supposed to conceal truth to those who are in unbelief. I don't mean unbelief out of ignorance. I mean unbelief out of willful. You're making the decision, as the Pharisees did, we are going to trap this man. Jesus had another parable later where a lawyer came up to him, and the first thing that's said about this lawyer is, a lawyer came up to Jesus and, seeking to tempt him, asked him a question. Who's my neighbor? Trying to get Jesus to go, oh my goodness, I guess I don't know, <laughs> which is comical. Jesus gives an answer. The lawyer uh, shoots back another response, and Jesus answers the question, and all we know about the lawyer is he was upset with the answer that he had gotten. He got the truth, but he wasn't looking for the truth. Isn't that a great definition of our society today? Receiving the truth, but not wanting that truth? That is unbelief, and it's a willful state that we can get into, and it's going to be a focus of our study today. But for the purpose of Proverbs 17, 14, we see that strife is something that once it's let out, it can get out of control very quickly, and we should leave off contention, which we already have been informed about contention, correct? How, does, how do we leave off contention? We avoid pride before it be meddled with. Now look at Proverbs 18.6. Right there, it should be on the same set of pages there. Page 685. A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Oh, is that the correct verse? 18.6? Oh, right before it. Yeah, a fool's lips enter into contention, and his mouth calleth for strokes. Now, what does it mean, calleth for strokes? This is probably violence for beating. Maybe he's the person that rushes into a mob and incites violence. 
But we see we're learning more about this contention. What kind of mouth is one that speaks with contention? A foolish one. One who lacks wisdom, lacks understanding. That's the definition of a person who uses their mouth to sow seeds of discords. It's one of the things that the Lord hates. Do we have any comparison or any other view to look at about how this mouth can be used? Well, we know from Proverbs 13.10 that with wisdom, the wise speaks truth. He avoids contention. Have you ever met somebody that seems to always have something to say with the intent of causing trouble? Meet a teenager. You'll find it very quickly. Meet an adult who has refused to grow up. You'll find it very quickly. Meet a bitter spouse. You'll find it very quickly. Meet a pastor who has put all the burden of his ministerial success on himself, and you will find a fool who speaks with contention. I have seen this online. Quite very, it, It's very plain when you see it. Pastors who are upset that the gospel is being maligned, yet they do not know how to speak with the wisdom in which Jesus instructs. I've seen pastors who make fools of themselves stand on their pulpit. I mean, they, they get up on their pulpit. I'm not even going to try to do that because I like this. And like I said, this is how tall I am. I don't want to add to it what man could add to you know, his stature. But I've seen men get on, get on pulpits and, and they step on their Bible and they, they, just, they just yell and yell and scream and everybody in there is like, woo, yeah, yeah. Can you imagine being a new person and coming to a church like that? That gets in the way of the truth of the gospel, but that's what a fool does. A fool can be a saved person, can he? We're going to see Moses and Aaron have this, uh, uh, um, conducted themselves foolishly. But why would we choose to do that? How do we get there? Well, pride. It's exactly how we get there. And lastly, Proverbs 22.10. A couple pages over. Page 688. Cast out the scorner, and contention shall go out. Yea, strife and reproach shall cease. Now, I'm going to say something here that might offend some of you that have little dogs, but just know I have a little dog too. There are times where that little dog sounds like a big dog and acts like they're 60, 70 pounds when they're just seven pounds. There is nothing better. Oh, I'm thinking about the moments right now when the dog stops barking. There's nothing better. You know it's the Amazon guy coming to the door. You know it's somebody just walking past your house so they can get to their house. And that dog is like, hey, 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 whoa, hey. And you're like, shh, be quiet. And then when the dog is quiet, that's good. That's a good thing. I know like when I go on vacation, now my, my dog is not nearly as bad as other dogs in my life, and I'll just leave that there. But I know that there are some times where I, I look forward to dropping off our dog with, my, uh, with Steve and Ann. Because when I get in the car, Nothing. All I have yelling at me is a GPS. And now Remy, because she wants snack, snack, you know, which is not nearly as bad as yip, 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 yip all the time. This is the same kind of illustration that comes to my mind when I think about a person who has a foolish mouth, is set because they have pride in their heart. They're, oh, they only want to be contentious. They only want to sow seeds of discord. You take that person and you tell them, go. 
leave. If you're not going to do the right thing, you can walk out. You don't have to be here, which sometimes is a surprise to them because they, they, they are so enamored with just wanting to be contentious that they find out, oh, I don't have to be here. This is, this is my free will to be here. But you find a lot of people thrive off of that. It becomes their source. Bitterness becomes the, the powerhouse in the things that they do. This is why I think church discipline is relevant. We're not just supposed to have a bunch of contention thrive in the church. If somebody wants to be contentious and be difficult, if they're not willing to receive instruction, which is given out of meekness and love, as we studied on Wednesday night, that's how we're supposed to restore a brother who's fallen into sin. If it's not being received, then we ask him to leave. And that's totally acceptable. Because if you let it sit, it's like a contagion. It starts affecting other people. Now, why are we studying you know, this word contention? Well, that's what the word Meribah means, which is up there on the screen. It's used several times in the Old Testament. And every time that it's used, yes, it names a place or a fountain, but it's always a place or a fountain that is named after some type of contention between Israel and God. And let's just try to figure it out. Which one had the pride? <laughs> right? Let's, let's fig- We're going to take the rest of the service. We're just going to work on that. No, no. We know very easily where the pride was. It was with Israel. Yet God was patient. Did Israel get delivered from their wandering? Yes. They absolutely did. If you're writing down notes, the Hebrew word Meribah, it can be reduced down to one form and then another form, Reb so to speak, is this quarreling, brawling, discord, and strife. That is exactly what we've seen in this wisdom book, Proverbs, a father instructing a son to be careful about Meribah, be careful about contention and strife and discord and quarreling. Now, we know there's sharp contention that we saw in the New Testament, and I don't think that's for us to decide if that was sinful or not, But even believers have a disagreement of opinion that leads them going the separate way. But both of those individuals, they still went on to do the Lord's work. Where it becomes detrimental to the body of Christ is when the contention results in a stopping of work. There's no, neither side is serving now. They're just serving their own selves. Let's go to our main chapter of study. It's in Numbers chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20, we're going to look at verses 1 through 13. We'll take a break and go to the book of Psalms in a little bit. We are in the fourth part of Israel's wandering. Let me just give you the first three. We had Egypt to Sinai. Delivered from Egypt, this was a, 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 a miracle, and anyone who wants to deny it is just denying the fact that God is able to deliver uh, using natural causes as well. The strongest army known in the world at that time, Egypt, pursued Israel after Pharaoh said, yes, you can go, which was after that 10th plague. They, They got to the shoreline of the Red Sea, and there was instruction for deliverance to be experienced. Moses was to hold out the staff the waters would split and Israel would walk on dry ground. That is exactly what happened. And as a result of that, it angered the Egyptian army. They were held back by a wall of fire until Israel crossed. As, as Israel got safely to the other side, 
That wall that was stopping the Egyptian army dissipated. They pursued and were drowned in the ocean. Jim Scudder at Quinton Road with In Grace TV has an excellent series on some chariots that were discovered in the uh, Red Sea at the very bottom. I encourage you to check that out. Speaking of Quinton Road, uh, James Maloney's parents are here with us today, Chris and Tina. Let's welcome them. Glad to have you with us. I'm sure they could tell you all about the work that In Grace TV does. It's a wonderful ministry that uh, Pastor Jim Scudder is working there. But as they were delivered from Egypt, they went to Sinai. Of course, then we have the instruction of the Ten Commandments given there and Israel's rebellion. What was Israel's rebellion? They took all of their gold, which is not a product of themselves, mind you. It's probably from an Egyptian craftsman. They put these things together. They were able to mold them. They had enough time. Sometimes I think about it. You know, have you ever been in the middle of making a series of bad decisions? And it's like you automatically go, what am I doing? What am I doing? What are we doing? Hands, what are you doing? Stop it. I just, it's remarkable to see the fallen nature of man to this degree. They crafted this golden calf. They called the calf Jehovah, worshiped it, and Moses came down and, and, and just let him have it. It was rough. Broke the Ten Commandments, was able, had to go back up, and as a result of this, there was a spiritual protection that was put around Mount Sinai. And I remember, um, oh man, our, one of our missionaries, I, George Heckman, gave this illustration about the intention of man and the expectation of God. The expectation of God was for Israel to do as they had instructed, or as they had been instructed. And what did Israel say? We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And how did God respond? Any of you come up to Mount Sinai and you pass this area here, you're going to die instantly. Because God knows the wickedness of man's heart. They wandered from Sinai to Kadesh. As a result there, they denied that God was able to bring them into the promised land. And then the third part of the journey, Kadesh to Kadesh. Now you say, wait a second. That's the same place. Yeah, what a nightmare. 38 years in that one spot. Can you imagine of wandering in the 33615 zip code for 38 years? What a nightmare. Just wandering anywhere where you know you've seen this before, the entire generation that had unbelief, please note that, the unbelief is what caused them to perish. And we have many stories. Most of Exodus and Numbers is rooted in that 38-year period of wandering. They say, you say it was 40. Yes, of course it was 40. This is the last part of that. Now we're in the last part where we're studying again some failures that Israel had, but now we have the leader appointed by God, Moses, and his right-hand man, Aaron, they are now falling into unbelief. The, the point of our study today is not to scratch our heads and our theological beards and say, hmm, I wonder if Moses was truly saved. We, we, know, we know what's up with Moses, amen? We know that man was at the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus along with Elijah. I don't think his salvation is in question. However, what he was striving for, what he was working for, the rest in the promised land he did not get to see. And that was a result of unbelief. But yet the place where the water did come out and did satisfy Israel's need for uh, water and their, their cattle and, and beasts as well, it did happen, yet it was called something, Meribah. 
contention, discord, strife, quarreling, brawling with God. Stubborn Israel, not wanting to fully rest in God's ability to deliver them. That's why they're on year 39, year 40 at this point. Because they did not believe that God was able to do what he said he would do. It's a great lesson for us to learn, and that's what we're going to study now. Numbers chapter 20. We're in that fourth period of wandering. Look at verse 1. Then came the children of Israel, even the whole congregation, into the desert of Zin in the first month, and the people abode in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation. This is not the first time that this has happened, but it's happened again. And they gathered themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. And the people chowed with Moses. That's not a fun thing. You don't, you know, that's, that, that's kind of bribing. That's, I, I would say a good illustration of this is bullying. They were bullying Moses and Aaron to this degree. What is the degree? Saying, would God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord? And why have ye, Moses and Aaron, look at where they're placing the blame, why have ye brought up the congregation of the Lord into this wilderness that we and our cattle should die there? Who's the one who brought them out of Egypt? Is it Moses? Is it Aaron? It's capital letters, L-O-R-D. I want you to notice something here. Some, uh, one thing, really. Sin blinds you from the truth. It blinds you from the truth. And I think many of us who have, have put our foot in our mouths, hindsight is always 2020. And we look back and we say, that's where I made the decision, when I believed the lie and acted on it as truth. That's where the decision came in, and everything fell apart. You know, marriages don't necessarily crumble overnight. There can be something that is revealed, like unfaithfulness or something else like along those lines, but it didn't happen in that one moment. It started a long time ago in the mind. Someone decided, whether it's the husband or the wife, somebody decided to believe the lie and then act on it. Well, if this was really true, then this would happen. Then they go down that vein. The next thing you know, two years later, the marriage has fallen apart. A year later, divorce has happened, and God is not pleased. That's not his intent. How did it happen? Sin blinds people. It also brings bondage. Look at the bitterness in which Israel had here. You brought, we would, we would have rather died. And you know, they're not talking about dying back in Egypt. They're talking about the deaths that had occurred in the past 38 years. They would have rather died and been swallowed up by the earth than to be in this position. They're so close. They're so close. They still have unbelief. And wherefore have ye made us come out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is no place of seed or of figs or of vines or of pomegranates, neither is there any water to drink. What's the statement here? We can't thrive here. We can't grow crops which would satisfy our hunger, and we certainly don't have any water. It's a desert. We're going to die out here of thirst, of dehydration, and we'll die. And you did it. You brought us here. We would have died back, you know, 10 years ago. Hmm. Wow. Now, careful, before you get on that high horse, I, I see some of us are starting to swing the leg over. I would never. Careful, you might be doing it right now. I think there's, there's a real test 
when you're on your way to church and you're thinking about all the people that you're going to see and maybe what message you're going to hear and all that, there's a real test as to where you are spiritually if this is something that you enjoy. This is something that brings joy to you. We're going to see at the end part of the message how we combat these things, the antidote, so, so to speak, to this deadly poison of, of contention. I think a lot of people come to church, and I'm not here to, to, to put this on you. I'm just here to, to tell you, let's talk about it. I think there's a lot of people who come to church out of necessity. They have to. They have to keep up appearances. They don't want to fall out. You know, there's, nothing, there's no reason why I shouldn't be here, so I'll be here. But the mind is not here. The heart is not here. You're, you're, you're not thinking about those who are to your left or to your right. This is how you get churches that are huge, and the only way they keep their production is by having new visitors for four weeks, and then they fall off as just people who've been coming. This is not a business. This is not a place where you come to uh, you know, get really good teaching from God's Word. Although that's something it does, we are supposed to encourage one another. How many of you were familiar with the AT&T uh, data outage this week? Let me tell you how quickly, how quickly those two cameras become useless. It's just like that. We have Frontier coming into this building. Very easily, a wire could fry up and our live stream goes down for several weeks. Very quickly, we break some terms and conditions on a server space that we're renting. I know I'm getting into the weeds with some things there. But all of a sudden, we get cut off. Somebody far away in a galaxy far, far away just turns off the switch and we don't have any power here as far as the internet goes. We should not take this time for granted. You're not coming to, oh, you know, I really like the Sunday school teacher. That's cool. Well, what, what happens if they leave? Something happens. What happens if you come in next week and, and you see somebody else in the pulpit and you go, I'm just going to go home. That's not how church should be. Church is encouraging. Folks, we need one another. Amen? And we all need to be reminded ultimately of the person of Jesus Christ. You start looking to yourself and your own desires and your own, you know, your own tastes and flavors, all of a sudden you're going to be like Israel here looking at God and saying, how could you have put us here? It didn't happen overnight. Now look at verse 6. So we have the, we have the situation in verses 2 through 5, and it ain't good. Imagine being Moses at this point. I wonder, is there any time where Moses went... You know, that was like when that hurricane happened and I'm looking, I'm like, why is, there why is there water bubbling out of the ground? That's not supposed to happen. I don't know how to fix it. <laughs> I literally looked at it and I was like. <laughs> so we've diagnosed the situation. The nation is upset. They're blaming Moses and Aaron. And Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and they fell upon their faces, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto them. Now, this is the proper response. I think we should look at this and say, this is a thumbs up, a good note here from Moses and Aaron. They went to the Lord. We don't even have anything recorded that they responded to the people as the people chode and bullied them. So they went to the Lord. Now, verse 7 is very important. Here's the instruction. The Lord, first of all, he showed up. He's there. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, now he spoke unto Moses because Moses is the leader. Aaron is going to fall into fault later because obviously there's something between the instruction that God gave 
And the actions that Moses did where Aaron could have interceded and stopped Moses from doing what he was ultimately going to do. But the instruction is clear. Verse 8, take the rod. Gather thou the assembly, thou and Aaron thy brother. Speak ye unto the rock before their eyes. Now, I want you to circle this. Notice the speaking is happening to the rock in the presence of the people. Please mark that. Note it however you want to do that. And it shall give forth his water, and thou shalt bring forth to them, page turn, water out of the rock, so thou shalt give the congregation and their beasts to drink. There's nothing here from God saying, I'm getting tired of Israel. We've, we're do, we've been doing this for far too long. Now, that was something that was said way earlier when God was looking at Israel and, he, and, and, and Moses interceded for Israel. We know how that, how that went. But God is very diplomatic here. And I believe the reason why is because this rock and the water is going to represent the fellowship that the believer in the church age has with Christ. When you sin now, you do not go back to the cross and seek to put Jesus on it again to die for that sin. We have a mediator between God and man. Our sin has been fully reconciled. The payment for that sin, which is in the shed blood of Jesus Christ, proved and secured by his resurrection, that is what is put to our account. We have a mediator. We have someone who goes between. The first time that Israel was in this position with the rock, Moses was instructed to what? Hit the rock. This is a representation of Christ being beaten for our sins, but he is not coming back to the earth to go back on the cross to die for sin. And why? Pray tell. Why? Because he did it once, and that's all that's needed. Can I get an amen? We only need it once. Oh, I love that. That's good. That's my best Freddy. Okay, that's all I can do. But now, as Moses is instructed, he says, speak to the rock in the midst of the congregation, and the blessing will result in satisfaction. Well, if you're here today, and you've already put your trust in Jesus Christ, and you're living in sin, you need only 1 John 1, 9, confess your sin, get into proper fellowship with the Lord, and know that you're forgiven. There's no need for Jesus to come back down onto the earth to die on the cross. This is the whole form and function of the, of the Catholic Eucharist. And I know you've heard me say this, but just as a reminder, it's very practical to what we're talking about today. Look at the cross behind me. Look at the cross in a Catholic church. What is the difference? Jesus is still on the cross because they believe every time that they meet for Mass and they have that Eucharist and that wine, they, they literally believe it is the body of Christ magically, transubstantiation is the theological term, and then the wine turns into the blood and the sinner is forgiven there because he's got to come back and die for it again. Heresy, heresy, heresy. It's the equivalent of what Moses did in striking the rock twice. That's the major problem here. I wanted to hold off on that part to show you in the scripture, but I want you to see very clearly we have a risen Savior. He has no desire to come back and pay for sin. It's been accepted. It was accepted on the cross. It is finished. Done. You living in that truth this morning? I pray that you are. Moses gets instruction here. 
verse 9. A lot happens between 8 and 9. Moses took the rod from before the Lord as he commanded him. This is the last part where Moses was obedient. And Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation, bingo, they got it, together before the rock, and he said unto them, stop. Who was he supposed to speak to? Look at verse 8. Take the rod, he did that. Gather thou the assembly together, he did that. And Aaron thy brother, Aaron's right there. And speak ye unto the rock before them. Verse 10. Moses and Aaron gathered the congregation before the rock. There they are. Rock, meet Israel. Israel, meet rock. And he said unto them. Obviously, he was so angry with the fact that they're here again that he decided to speak to Israel instead of the rock. He never addresses the rock. Look what he says to Israel. Here now, you rebels. Ooh. In today's vernacular, those are called fighting words. Moses is about to throw hands. Okay? He's, you know, you rebels. Yikes. Must we fetch you water out of this rock? And he lifted up his hand, and with the rod, he smote the rock twice. The water came out. Ooh. Because God made a promise. He's going he's gonna to come good on that promise. But there's some trouble here. I want you to note something here. Must we fetch? What is the significance here? Moses and Aaron, they go to the, to the Lord. The Lord says, speak to the rock, and I will cause it to come out. I will cause the water to come out, and everything will be satisfied. He leaves the presence of the Lord. He goes to Israel. He chides them, you rebels. Do we have to do this for you? Who's he putting the miracle on? Oh, himself. And as he does that, he and Aaron together, they, they disobey by striking the rock. There's a lot of things that we can look at here, but before we do, we need to look at the result of this. First of all, the water came out. Regardless of what kind of false heresy is being said about Christ, he still can pay for their sin, amen? And regardless of what kind of sin you fall into, you can still be restored to proper fellowship. But let me tell you, folks, you're going to put scars on your body that ought not be there. Scar tissue is a, is a weird thing. How many of you have had scar tissue? You, you can touch that area today, and it's odd, because it's like hard and calloused, and there's no feeling there, and you're like, I can touch over here, and it's there, but I touch here, something is wrong. That is not how it's supposed to be. And we can put scars upon our bodies as we look out to God and, 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 and blame him, or you blame somebody in your church, or you blame your kids, or you blame your work, or you blame our country's politics, and you go on sinning against the Lord. That's not, that's not a good excuse. You still have the blessings of the Lord. You still have the security of your salvation. Well, boy, you're going to miss out on being able to enter into that rest, which is the joys of our Christian life now and our quality of service with the Lord later. You're going to miss out on that by disobeying him now. Well, the miracle happened. Verse 11 gives us some pretty or verse 12 gives us uh, an insight here. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron. Now, a lot of, lot of discussion can be made about what was Moses' problem here and all that, but the, the, the text tells us. So highlight this next part. Because ye believed me not. I always cringe when I hear people say, 
that the grace of God is cheap grace or it's easy believism. The entire hinging, the, the knee, so to speak, of Israel's success fell on their belief. The entire knee, so to speak, the hinge of a lost person's deliverance from condemnation to justification hinges on belief. And that's the reason why Moses was going to receive this punishment. You did not believe that what I said and how to do it was sufficient. You served yourself. Contention, quarrel. How do you think it would be received if someone said to you, hear ye now, you rebels? <laughs> Is that quarrelsome, discord, strife, uh, brawling? Yeah. I'm not going to go to my wife later and, and be like, hear now, you rebel. I mean, I might. No, I'm just kidding. She'd, she'd never. But I wouldn't blame her. You know? like, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to go over there to India and, and, and lead with that. It's so good to be here. You rebels. What? There are, whole, there are whole ministries that are based off that approach. And it's sad. And it's, it's, it's little men, you know, pretending to be something bigger. They're playing in their own shadow. And they just, la, 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 la. like that little dog that follows the big dog. Why, I, ought to, I think his name is Scrappy or something like that. You don't have the power. You know, when I get up here and I get animated and all this stuff, I'm not animated because I'm trying to make you believe something. I'm animated because the Word of God is teaching us something important here, and we can avoid massive casualties in our lives as far as opportunities by just simply taking heed from these warnings. But it's the belief that was the problem. Look at what it says. Because ye believe me not, verse 12 to sanctify, set apart me in the eyes of the children of Israel. Therefore ye shall not bring this congregation into the land which I have given them. This is the water of Mirabah, because the children of Israel strove with the Lord, and he was sanctified in them. Now, he's, they're still set apart for a purpose. But what Moses did in striking the rock and placing the onus for the water to come out on him and Aaron, he basically told Israel, the Lord is not set apart to meet our needs. I need to provide for you. I've got to do it. That's a major problem. Now, I know we don't have a bunch of pastors and teachers out here, but for those who might be listening to this later, if you want to tank a ministry, if you want to run it right into the ground, you as the pastor or the elder or the deacon or anyone with major responsibility in the church, you just go ahead and put all the responsibility on yourself. That's how you tank the ministry. The ministry is not successful because there's a good leader. The ministry is successful because we have a head of the body named Jesus Christ. That's the focus. This is why Jesus washed the feet of the disciples, to demonstrate servant leadership. We have leadership today where people go into Congress poor, and they come out really rich 800 years later in the case of Pelosi. And you think, how did that happen? Are they serving the people? No, they're serving themselves. And you look at it and you say, that's not right. And you go, yeah, I'm not going into Calvary Community Church to then come out the other side with all these assets. You know, that's not my purpose. I'm compensated fairly well for my work here, and I greatly appreciate that, but that's not my desire. I don't go into those budget meetings and go, you got to advocate for yourself, okay? You got to get in there. Inflation, all this other stuff, you know? 
Look at all the work I've done, blah, blah, blah. I'm writing a book right now. I have no intent on publishing that book under my own name. I want to publish that under the ministry of the church here because the desire is to get it in people's hands so that they can read it and understand it. And some people would say that's foolish. My intent is not to make a, a bunch of money off this stuff. It's freely the word of God. Let the commentary be free as well. Amen? That's not to bring others into condemnation who would choose to do something in a different way. But very easily, you can see ministers put themselves on the top. I saw a video of Kenneth Copeland recently smacking his head, saying, Lord, this baldness be gone. I'm like, yeah, of course it's gone. You just put a big toupee on there, buddy. And there's people, it pans to the audience, and people are jumping up and down. It's so sad. Bald men jumping up and down, thinking that all of a sudden, and you look at it and you go, this is the state of the church? And then you go to another video and you see Stephen Furtick telling you that God broke the law in sending his son Jesus. And you go, what is happening? What's happened? We've made men idols. And Moses and Aaron, in this point, they put the responsibility on themselves and they went out of anger and, and resentment and they said, we got to do this for you again. And they disobeyed. Israel benefited still. They got the water that they needed. But who lost out? Moses and Aaron. Aaron's going to die in the 40th year on the top of the mountain. He just dies there. Sickness, not sure, whatever it is, but he doesn't enter in. And nor does Moses. The higher up you are in responsibility, the more sensitive and damaging your sin is. All the men in the room who are leading families, you're on a high up perch. The sin that you do and your children see it and your wife sees it, it's damage. Well, that's not fair. Well, that's tough. I don't really know how else to say it. If you're trusting in yourself to deliver from that pride, you're never going to have it because all you have is pride. We need Jesus, amen? That's who we need. We need to look to him. Let me just give you a summary, and then we're going to move on to the New Testament. Moses harshly rebuked the people, took credit for what God had done, resented the Israelites, lost his temper, disobeyed God, did not trust God's power, instead his own, failed to glorify God and rebelled against God, resulting in his inability to see the land in which he wandered around for 40 years. Go to Exodus 17, 7. Exodus 17, 7. I'm like, ooh, what's over here? I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I do know. And he called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the chiding of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? What I want you to see here is this is not the first time that this has happened. Anyone who goes to you and says true sign of sal a true sign of salvation is a sinless life does not understand the basic teachings of the Old Testament. Israel time and time again needed deliverance because of their own unbelief. And what did God do? He provided it. Amen? Ultimately, that provision is made in the Son, Jesus Christ. 
But there is no removal of your sin nature when you get saved. You still have it. Otherwise, the entire New Testament would have stopped at the resurrection of Christ. Maybe one line, and they went on into perfection. There's no church at Corinth. There's no instruction to avoid the ways of Hymenius and Philetus in 2 Timothy. They would have never done that if they were really saved. There's no instruction from 1 John to walk in him in obedience because you're just going to do it. You're just going to have Nike Christianity. You just do it all the time. Yet there are people today on airwaves with millions of dollars behind them telling you the sign of a converted life is no sin. That's a lie. The sign of a converted life is the empty tomb. The sign of a converted life is the blood applied. There it is. That takes it off of you and puts it on Jesus. And praise God for that. If my salvation was dependent upon myself, no bueno. Not good. Now let's look at some applications in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 3. Now I'm, I'm excited about this part. Oh boy, I'm excited about this part. Why? Because Hebrews is that, that book, you know? Some of y'all know this. I've talked with you about it personally. <clears throat> it's that book where it's like, whoa, 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 you know, you're not going to enter into eternal life if you live in unbelief. But understanding the illustration of the rock and Moses, who still entered in, but he did not enter in in his physicality, we can see a lesson that's taught here. Hebrews chapter 3, in verse 7. This is page 1293. Now, as a cross-reference for verses 7 through 11... I want you to write down Psalm 95, 7 through 11. It's kind of funny how that worked. The chapter divisions are the exact same of where this quote is taken from the book of Psalms. But this is an exhortation as a reminder, similar to the generation who wandered. Now for us today, now in, in interpretation, this is to Jews who are now Christians. But this is for anybody, I would say, in application. Wherefore, as the Holy Ghost saith, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the day of provocation, in the day of the temptation of the wilderness, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, saw my works 40 years. Wherefore, I, was, I the Lord, was grieved with that generation and said, they do always err in their heart, in their mind, and they have not known my ways, so I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest." This is what you call the example that is set, and then there's an application that comes from it. What's the example? The, Isra the, the Israelites wandered for 40 years because they tempted the Lord, they did not believe, and as a result, that entire generation perished without going into the promised land. Still Israel, but didn't get to experience the blessings of that day. So now in verse 12, there's an illustration for modern believers today. Take heed. What does it mean to take heed? Yield. Watch this. This is the, whoa, pay attention. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you that same heart as it was in the day of provocation, but the scripture describes it, an evil heart of what? Unbelief. In departing from the living God. Do not abandon your faith in the same way that Israel tempted God and wandered for 40 years and died. But exhort one another daily while it is called today. So 
Antidote number one, comfort one another. This is hard to do if you hate the person in which you're trying to comfort. Not going to happen. I remember when the Bucks won the Super Bowl, and I was driving down there. Boy, that was a fun time. Drove down there, and uh, you know all the Chiefs fans were not being comforted, nor were being comforting. <laughs> they were in direct opposition to the Bucks fans. Bucks fans were joyous. All that was good. I kind of think about that same illustration when I think about a person who comes to church in the body of Christ, but they hate the people in the church. They're in opposition. How can you comfort one another daily, as is the instruction, but you hate those in which you're sitting next to? The answer is, it will not happen. And any success you think you have is a result of your own self-deception. And that's a sad thing. We already have a great deceiver out there who's doing a really good job. Why would we want to take part and deceive ourselves? But that's the solution. Comfort one another, which comes in the spirit of meekness, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Doctor, I'm having difficulty. Uh, my, my, my mind is hardened against one another. All right, take this. What is this? This is the exhortation pill. Take this, and it'll help with the hardness of your heart. Okay. And then you look at it, and you're like, I don't want to take that. You know the side effects of that thing are joy and peace? I don't want that. I want to be angry. Well, guess what? You'll be angry. You'll still have the hardness of heart. Now, verse 14 is beautiful. For we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. The persecution that we suffer as a result of staying with the Lord, staying in sensitivity, staying uh, uh, in obedience through love, the result is we get to take part in the suffering that he took part in. Not in the eternal life, that's not the context here. The context here is the Christian life and the ability to serve him in the kingdom. While it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts as in the provocation. He repeats it for a second time here. Because the example is Israel in the wilderness. For some, when they had heard, did provoke. Howbeit not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. Not everybody was in this problem, but they suffered alongside. Can the church suffer because of a few people? Yes, it can. It's suffering today. And I'm not talking about our, our little building here. I'm talking about the body of Christ as a whole. People are falling into this wicked bear trap called Calvinism. I'm telling you. They're tired of easy preaching, which is just the gospel, amen? They're tired of God's word, and they go to, I need to be intellectual. I need to have degrees. And then they fall into this trap of really poor thinking. It stops their spiritual growth, and there's no desire to soul win, because who are you to say who God picks? Well, the atonement is limited, you see. He didn't die for everybody, because that would mean he wasn't able to save. And there's so many books and degrees that are hidden behind that that people can't see it. But with whom was he grieved 40 years? 17. Was it not with them that had sinned, whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? That's a very crass term, carcasses. Okay? Well, Bob, you look nice today. What a nice carcass. <laughs> that you, if, if someone says to you, I saw a carcass, you're like, whoa, what happened? <laughs> They fell in the wilderness. They died as a result of that. That's a negative uh, result for their unbelief. So, that, so we see that they could not enter in. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 18. And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest, but to them that believed not? So we see that they could not enter in because of what? 
unbelief, their own decision. Skip over to chapter 4 in verses 11 through 12. Let us labor, second antidote. You work. You want to cure that hardness of heart? Comfort one another and know that the suffering you're going through is a part of being in the body of Christ. The world hated him, they're going to hate us. Okay? Second thing is, get busy. Do something. Don't just sit and wait for God to like strike you with a lightning bolt of, of vision. Sometimes I feel like we need to be struck with this. Not physically, but this we need to go, oh, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Guys, we see this physically. If you sit around in your house all day, I mean, if you, if you lay in bed days and days and days on end, your body will break down. You'll get bed sores. You, you will hurt your ability for the range of motion. Your, the, the blood will pool and then the skin. It's a terrible thing. How do we avoid that? Get up and do something. Just like we walk around and go different places, you know, we go on walks and we do all this stuff to, to keep our bodies in good shape. Spiritually, we need to be working for the Lord. If you're just spiritually laying in bed, you're going to enter into unbelief. You're going to start doubting. You're going to start Monday morning quarterbacking it. I could be the greatest quarterback in the NFL. Do you know why I'm not? I'm not on the field. <laughs> That's why. You could see all the angles and all the stats and data. Oh, I would have done that. Really? That's why you're there and he's there, you know? <laughs> But people look at the same thing spiritually. Well, I wouldn't have done that if I was pastor. Hmm. Well, I wouldn't have said that. But you're not doing anything in ministry at all. You're not helping the body of Christ. You're not soul winning. You're not praying. You're rotting away. I know that's hard preaching, but we need to be reminded of it. I don't want to have a fountain in the middle of the church called Meribah, and we're like, ooh, that's pretty. Verse 12, for the word of God is quick. There's the third antidote, the word, amen? The word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Why is that relevant? Because that's where unbelief begins, in the mindset. The word of God attacks the mindset and presents the believer with a choice, obey or disobey. And then our fourth antidote, and where we'll close for our study this morning, is Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Verse 14, seeing then we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. Don't quit. Don't look back. Look forward to the Lord. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. We're not going down to the Catholic Church, to talk to the man who's a sinner like us. I've got the Son of God, and so do you. But as in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. What a relief. There's not that one part of Jesus' life where it was like, that's where he sinned. There's nothing. He's sinless. He went through what we're going through right now, and he came out victorious. Let us therefore come boldly, unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The illustration here, if we're talking about the hardness of heart being a symptom and exhorting one another being the medication, if the, what, what's the doctor's office in this illustration? It's the throne room of grace. 
Now, some of you are like, okay, I've got my iPad out. Where is that located? I'll put it into my mapping application. That's not what it is. It's the presence in the temple of God in which you are now. You have the Holy Spirit. You are the temple of God. The throne room of grace is accessed instantly by prayer. And you can run into that room. You do not have to, you know, some people do that. They, they know that they're sinners. They know that they've got things going on. And they cower. And, and they make it about themselves. It's a very subtle way of pride. I can go into that room and say, Dad, I need you. And know that he's there to hear me. I love my wife, I love my family, I love you all, but there's nobody like that save Jesus. There's nobody like that. He will, not under, he, he will understand things that some of us will never understand about each other. What a shame it is to put that off or to make it the last resort. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Are we in a time of need? Uh, did you wake up this morning? <laughs> We're always in a time of need. You have a sinful nature that is set against any spiritual growth. You're always in a time of need. But when you stop praying, when you start being lifted up in pride and there's contention and these lips are used as a fool and you're a scoffer, you're going to get a result that you don't like. You're still a child of God if you put your trust in Jesus Christ. But you will be, and this is a very strong word, but it's, it's true, useless, profitless, put on the shelf, discarded. I don't want that for any of you. I don't want it for myself. I don't want to be a bitter man that leads a bitter family and when my daughter grows up and can put things together, she goes, Dad's not happy when he's at church. Dad always has his brows furrowed when he's talking about so-and-so or whatever it may be. I got to watch that. What example I set for my children. What example I set for you. How do you stay sensitive to it, Pastor? I stay close to the Savior. I stay close to Him. When there's water bubbling up out of the ground, when there's water coming through uh, my office and drippity drip drip, when I'm looking at the ceiling, go. <laughs> I really, in those moments, I'm, I'm Lord. What do I do? Help me get through this. And there's still the ceiling still busts open. You still need a ten thousand dollar repipe. All those different things happen. But you're satisfied in the ability that the Lord will provide, and He has. I'm just talking about physical things. There's a lot of things in my life that I've seen turn into chaos, but the storm is stilled when I go to the Savior. We need to speak to the rock, not strike it out of anger. You can close your Bibles. If you're here this morning and you may say, Pastor, if I were to die today, I don't know where I'm going. I think it would be heaven. I hope so, but I'm not sure then I want to make sure that you know without any shadow of a doubt that you're going to heaven when you die. I'll use this illustration. This hand represents you and me. This block of sin represents sin. I put it on top of my hand because the Bible says for all have sinned and, and they've come short of the glory of God, which is perfection. You have to be absolutely sinless to get to heaven. And a lot of world religions teach, well, you just have to sin less, do less sinning. No, no, you have to be without any of it. The wages of sin 
is death, eternal separation from God forever in a literal fire-burning hell. The Bible calls this the second death because there is a first death, and that is separation of the soul from the body. But the second death is when you spend an eternity in hell because you don't have a payment for this sin applied. This sin, it gets in the way of any kind of goodness between us and God. A lot of people think, well, if I do good works, if I stop sinning, start, I don't even know what you would call it, non-sinning, then somehow uh, God will let me in because, you know, good outweighs bad, and if it's heavier than the other, then I'll get in. Well, that's not how it says. The wages of sin is death. Someone has to die for this. This hand represents the only begotten Son of God, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man. And if you're here today and you wonder, how do I know that I, that, how can I know that I have eternal life? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Salvation is attained by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who as the Son of God shed his blood, was buried and rose again three days later to pay for your sin. That's how salvation is put to your account. Salvation is done in the person of Jesus Christ. Not by the will of man. Not by any desire that we have. God's grace and mercy, he sent his son to die for this sin. You receive that salvation by faith in him. The moment that you believe, and I mean the moment, you might be here right now and you say, that sounds good, I believe on Jesus. Right there in that moment, you are saved. And you may go, What's the difference? It's not a physical difference. You're born again spiritually. The Holy Spirit just indwelled you, and he will stay there until the day that you die or at the rapture. The blood of Christ has been put to your account. The word is imputed. You are born again. You are now the inheritor of eternal life, all by faith in Jesus Christ. Amen? And once you're saved, you're saved forever. If there's any way you could lose your salvation, Jesus would have to come back down and die again for that sin. But he paid for it all. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer, please. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. If you're here today and you say, Pastor, that makes sense. The best that I know how, I've put my trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God who shed his blood on Calvary to pay for my sin. I believe that he died and rose again for me. Would you pray for me? I certainly would. Would you just raise your hand and let me know? Raising your hand doesn't save you. There's nothing special in raising your hand. It just signifies to me that you understood today and put your trust in Jesus Christ. You know you're going to heaven. Anyone before we close? Heads are bowed and eyes are still closed. As we're dealing with believers today, can we learn a lot from Moses and Aaron? Can we see the danger of unbelief the damage that comes from contention? Will you stay close to the Savior? Don't wander off in your own wilderness and think, I got it, I got it. You don't got it. You need Him. And you have access to Him. Don't make Him the last resort. Don't allow that bitterness to lead your life. Don't let there be a fountain in the middle of your life called Meribah. Father, thank you for your word and for its clear instruction. I lift up all my brothers and sisters in Christ today. And I pray, Lord, that your will would be done in our lives. Give us the strength that we need, Lord, to do what you've asked us to do. We are looking to the skies for your son's return. We cannot wait. But until that time, give us what we need. 
Father, I pray for those who will be uh, teaching in my place. Think of Trent, Warren, James, the elders, those who are going to be taking care of the church while I'm gone. Give them much provision and safe travels for myself. I pray that tonight would be filled with good questions and good answers. I pray for that Awana program that's growing. It's growing. For our ranch program that's growing. For English as a second language, for the soul winning efforts that are bringing tens of people to Christ each week. I pray, Lord, that we'd be sensitive to the need, but be close to you. In Jesus' name, I pray these things. Amen.